You're like with your friends, they're sleeping over, like we're gonna stay up all night. And then you remember like if you're a little kid, you're kinda of like, well you can't stay up all night. It's impossible. We're going to go now to the big Cypress Seminole Indian Reservation in Florida. There was the biggest traffic jam that we know of in the country. Thousands of people from all across the country, all headed to the Everglades to hear the group fish perform for New Year's. 75,000 people. 75,000 people. And we couldn't really believe that they were going to play all night. It just didn't even seem possible. Like, how would that even happen? It happened because for the previous 15 years, the band Fish blazed a fearless and unlikely creative path from deepest Vermont to the Florida Everglades and one of the most legendary performances of all time. It was the year of Woodstock 99. The crowds are blowing up CO2 tanks from the tractor trailers. They got uh, troops in there with riot gear. They're forcing everybody out. Mass chaos. Mass chaos. Some 20,000 attended the first Coachella that October. The Backstreet Boys ruled MTV. Moby topped the music critics' polls and licensed every song on his new album for commercial use. Far, far away from everything, everybody, and everywhere, in Jack Motlow's cow pasture on the seminal Big Cypress Reservation in Florida, with no sponsorship at all, Fish built a city for 75,000 people, erected surrealistic art installations, and staged a three-day festival with one act and one act only on the bill, and then played a seven-hour-long set that lasted from the final minutes of the 20th century into the literal dawn of the 21st. After midnight, Fish's Big Cypress Festival, a new five-episode podcast from Osiris, is the story of how Fish staged one of the strangest concerts in the history of rock music. My name is Jesse Jarno. Join us as we explore how Fish invented their own telepathic, jam-obsessed musical language, built an independent concert industry, and how both came together in the Florida Everglades for an improvisation-filled performance that landed a 15-foot-long hot dog with headlights in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We'll hear from band members Trey Anastasio. You know, I think we felt like this party was for our friends. And John Fishman. That was the end of a chapter of Fish's life, that, and, and of my life. Former Fish manager John Paluska and others will tell the dramatic, untold story of Fish at Big Cypress. We had to get some alligator wrangler to pull an 11-foot alligator out of the backstage area. That was interesting. <laughs> uh, that was a big alligator. We'll refill the swamp and revisit a legendary independent festival that came to transform the music industry despite being ignored by the mainstream. Fish found someplace better and left behind a map to Big Cypress. After Midnight debuts November 14th on all podcast platforms. Visit OsirisPod.com slash After Midnight to subscribe today. If you're out there on the highways, if you're within the sound of our voice, you're near to Big Cypress, Florida.
folks, I'm David Goldstein. I am Brian Brinkman. You are tuned in to episode number 82 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is the podcast where, generally speaking, we use the music of Fish as a means of introducing the listener to other bands. These are usually not jam bands because we love Fish very much. We are Fish fans. Sometimes the problem with Fish fans, they have a tendency to get a bit myopic and only focus on their favorite band, listening to the exclusion of everything else. So while certainly we are aiming to um, deal with those individuals, this pond is big. We are really welcome to anybody who wants to come in with an open mind and experience some new music. Absolutely. We're a big tent here. There's a lot of space for all of us, from those of us who need to learn to those of us who want to learn. And we've been in both of those categories from time to time. And we are here right now to talk about uh, one of the most incredible evenings, one of the most incredible sets, one of the most incredible shows in Fish's history. The show, if you will. We're talking about The Roses Are Free from deep, deep in the Midnight to Sunrise set from December 31st, 1999 to January 1st, the dawn of the new millennium. This is a fascinating, mind-bending 35-minute jam that we are stoked to dive deep into. And some of the themes that you can expect to hear about in this episode include repetition can be awesome. It's the end of the century as we know it. And this is the sound of an overtired band. And on that note... Let's get to some fish. This is our first traditional BTP episode in about a month and a half. As of time of recording, this is the first time we've sat down in front of a microphone since Nashville, so we are very excited, very eager to get back at it and back to your ears. Uh, Before we jump into this jam, I do want to note, you heard at the top of the show, the uh, trailer for the Osiris After Midnight Big Cypress podcast hosted by Jesse Jarno featuring interviews with Trey Anastasio and John Fishman, amongst many others. Uh, We highly recommend you guys checking that out. If you liked our Cypress uh, episodes we've put out this year, the Cypress split up in a melt, Cypress cross-eyed, and now the Cypress roses, we assure you, you are going to love that. We are now 
about to uh, jump into episode two as a time of publishing. Um, but that said, why are we talking about The Roses Are Free from Big Cypress Seminole Indian Reservation on December 31st, 1999? Well, one reason is perhaps no jam better summarizes the hazy 5 a.m. still somehow awake we're all in this together nature of the Big Cypress all night set better than the roses just five songs from its conclusion okay maybe the quadraphonic top one does but really i would say the roses is the capstone to this sensation yeah this is a band at this point they sounded they sounded overtired you know how um on the nirvana song penny royalty like kurt cobain whines i'm so tired i can't sleep it's like that or any parent will kind of be familiar with when you have a kid and they miss a nap or they do something to deviate from the routine and then they're screaming and crying because they're overtired, but they just can't bring themselves to conk out. This is kind of the fish version of that. This jam, it's bleary-eyed, it's repetitious, somehow loose. I mean, to my ears, it sounds like they're just barely holding on at this point. Yeah, at some point it sounds as though Trey has just completely dropped out of the jam and all we have are Mike, Page, and Fish kind of noodling until sunrise. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like uh, like Trey went to go take a leak a la May 29th, 1994 <laughs> from Laguna Seca because you can't really hear him. Maybe he's just admiring the handiwork of his bandmates Maybe he's there, maybe he's not. He's figuring out what to do, just saying, holy shit, we did it. I don't know, but it's, uh, I guess it's almost like refreshingly not that tray focused. Yeah, it's one of the things I love about this deep part of 1999. Um, you know, the fact that the band was jamming in such a minimalist style that, that their focus wasn't necessarily on lead guitar work. And, you know, I, I would say the question that we have here, this is all the more reason why we need a full documentary of what happened at Big Cypress, a full DVD of it. Uh, we've said this before, guys, but let's get it. Let's get it right now. Um, this jam reminds me from a 1999 standpoint as uh, like the ghost into my left toe from October 9th in Albany. Uh, the Limb by Limb from December 3rd in uh, Cincinnati, and The Drowned from December 12th in Hartford. Uh, it leans so hard into space and minimalism, which is what made December 99 and late fall 99 so unique from a jamming standpoint. Uh, the band had at this point in time basically all but moved beyond the overt funk and dance-heavy grooves of 97 and 98, we're here solely focused on exploring textures, space, and minimalism. Of note, the jam literally just stops on a dime around 35 minutes because they were just done. <laughs> There's like no nothing else they could do. There's no wind down. It's just like the jam is kind of jamming. They're in a groove, and then it just stops. And <laughs> so bizarre. And they play Bug, right? Yeah, Bug comes right after that. Okay. Some of the uh, noteworthy versions of Roses Are Free we wanted to list would be uh, December 11, 1997 from Rochester. Of course, uh, that was the debut, which came out of Drowned, and there was a lot of footage of uh, both, I think, on stage and backstage of this in Bittersweet Motel. Yes. Of course, we have April 3rd of 1998, the Nassau Roses. 
People say it's one of the best jams of all time. I'm not as crazy about it as some other people, but I mean, you can't argue that it's pretty damn good. What's the next one? Uh, July 13th, 1999. Uh, I have a soft spot for this show. You were at this show. I don't know if you like it as much as I do. This is in the middle of a really bizarre intro to the sh- to the show. Like the first quarter of this is just wild. Uh, Haley's jams into roses, jams into Edo two, which has the first extended piano outro in like 15 years, something like that. It's just wild. There's a Karini too in there at some point. Yeah, I think Reba segues into Karini. It's it's insane. Dude. Yeah, I was at that show. Set one was great. I loved it. I thought set one was better than the second set. Very long, very, very 1999, kind of boring Wolfman's brother. But you had Encore, Skinnered, Tuesday's Gone with Scott Morosky. Kind of uh, before the Mike Gordon band was a thing, Jan with Fish. Yeah, I think that that is uh, one of my favorite encores of all time. They just they nail that cover. Um, and then finishing out here, uh, June 8th, 2012. This was a total shock jam off of Roses Are Free. What a throwback moment in a killer opening duo of shows to kick off summer 2012. Uh, we have never actually featured anything from the Worcester shows of 2012, but this is probably the 20th time we've mentioned them. We're both mm. huge fans, both huge proponents for what the band did uh, during those uh, that opening, uh, I guess it was a weekend. Um, Thursday. Thursday, Thursday Friday, Friday night. Thursday yeah. and Friday night. Uh, really did a great, uh, a great service to the fan base uh, after a disastrous New Year's Eve run. Maybe disastrous is pretty strong a word, but I'd say uninspired. I stand by it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that was um, Thursday night. They couldn't sell out a Thursday night in Worcester. And they come out and say, fuck you guys, just buried alive. <laughs> um, but speaking of quite inspired New Year's Eve runs, uh, Big Cypress, uh, which would have been 12 years prior to 2011. And we're here finally, if you've listened to us talk about like i said earlier the cypress split open and melt split cypress cross out and painless we've tracked through december 99 we've tracked through december 30th we've tracked through the um first set of december 31st we have arrived at the entree of the entire experience that was december 1999 fish the show a seven hour set from midnight to sunrise um for the entirety of Fisher's career, they dreamed of what they called the long, long gig. It was an opportunity for them to lock themselves into a room with their fans and just play. Time would become meaningless, and the goal would be to see how strange the music would sound some 10, 12, 20 hours after they began to play. What impact would this have on their fans, they wondered, and what impact would this have on themselves and the music that they made? Now, excusing all legal and practical restrictions limiting this idea, the closest thing Fish has yet to come to executing the long gig was set two of their 1231.99 millennial crossover set. It took the stage just before midnight, played without pause until sunrise, unquestionably the most ambitious undertaking of their career and one of the greatest accomplishments of any band of the last 50 years. Yeah, I mean... The music that came from this evening is outstanding. You hardly need us to, t- to tell you that. 
the down with disease into llama, the bathtub gin, the twist, rock and roll, gigantic cross-eyed, which we covered, the sand and the quadrifon, a toppling huge Reba, Bowie drowned into after midnight, Piper, the roses, 2001. I mean, it's in the same collection of jams and huge songs in which nothing really compares. I mean, this would be an unbelievable archival release that I would run out and get on vinyl the very second that became available. <laughs> and this is um, worth noting, this is the show that convinced Fish they had to take a break. Ten months later, they did just, they did just that. Four and a half years later, they were supposedly finished. Yeah, it really kind of, I don't want to say it broke the band, but it definitely... I remember, you know, interviews with Trey where he talks about him and Fish walking off stage at sunrise with tears in their eyes, just looking at each other and being like, we, there's nothing else we can do. Yeah, what do you and, do? That's it. I don't know. <laughs> you know, like, the thing that's wild is six months later, they did an amazing tour of Japan uh, that, you know, lifted off the ideas musically of uh, of Big Cypress. And most of the 2000 uh, tour, there's some really great stuff in there. But, um you know, I, I think the thing that's fascinating from a 20-year perspective now, the show, the Big Cypress event, it's less of a dominant force in their history at this point in time. Uh, it's really a sign of what the band is capable of when they push themselves beyond the norm. And I would say in the years since, they've really used the performance essentially as a litmus test for how far they're willing to push themselves. You look at the Storage Jam, the Fuck Your Face show, the Wingsuit set, chilling and thrilling set the drive-in jam the entirety of the baker's dozen casual boxed now none of this has come particularly close to cypress's overwhelming brilliance but i think that that's not really what matters i don't think anything ever will what matters to me i think what matters to the band i think what matters to the fan base is that it's become this kind of yardstick for inspiration rather than a burden some 20 years on they can almost look back and say well we did that so what else can we do? Where else can we take this creative project? And I think the unexpected nature of some of their best moments and most creative moments, rather whether or not they've worked or have not worked in the last 20 years, are all a result of them reaching way beyond traditionalism in uh, what a rock concert could and should feel like and creating something that was all uniquely their own. I would agree entirely. And at that point, I think the best thing that we can do is listen to a little bit of the Roses Are Free from, well, I guess technically, wouldn't this be January 1st, 2000? We are in the dawn of the new millennium right now. Let's listen to it.
hope you guys are a little bit more awake than Fish and the compatriots at the show were uh, at 5 a.m. on January 1st, 2000. But, uh, man, that was one incredible jam there. Such hazy minimalism. And we're going to talk about a recorded performance from one of our favorite young bands in America right now. Uh, that features some jamming very similar, uh, very much in the same realm as uh, what we heard out of Fish from Big Cypress. And that band is Garcia Peoples, and we're going to talk here about their recently released uh, second album of the year. This one largely improvisational, called One Step Behind, the title track being a 31-minute recorded, just smeared out as far out in the distance uh, on both sides of the song jam as you could get uh, before we jump into that we're really excited um, you guys should be seeing signs pop up here on social media you should be hearing about this on osiris podcast uh, osiris is presenting the uh, december 30th uh, fish after show featuring riley walker chris forsyth and garcia peoples uh, that's happening in your uh, neck of the woods isn't it dave yeah, it's going to be happening at Le Poisson Rouge, a.k.a. Uh, people call it LPR. It's kind of a really cool basement venue in Greenwich Village on Bleecker Street. There's a lot of history in that venue. That only makes me want to be there even more. Um, I am uh, – there's like a 10% chance I'm going to be in New York City that evening. Uh, I'm trying to make it happen. Um, but for anyone listening who's going to the 1230 shows – or the twelve thirty show at Madison Square Garden, or who's in New York City and looking for a, a great late night show, highly, highly recommend that uh, you guys check this out. More information is going to be online, but um, we've got a ton of cool Osiris info, a ton of a cool Osiris merch. A um, bunch of Osiris people are going to be at the show. Uh, we're going to be launching one of our new podcasts for twenty twenty there. So definitely recommend you guys all check it out. I'm guessing you're going to be there, Dave. Yeah, I definitely will be there. If you have uh, know me or follow me on Twitter over the past few years, you know that I don't do fish after shows. My feeling is I've just spent two and a half, three hours seeing the greatest improvisational rock band in America and how it's like 1130 at night. Why do I want to see some other band that does what fish does but not as good? But that's not the case here at all. These are uh, no. three very exciting bands that have all had huge 2019s. So I think this is uh, an excellent bill, an excellent capper. And I will this time break my self-imposed rule of not doing fish after shows. <laughs> and I will get my ass to LPR that evening after the 1230 show. Love it. Love it. Um, so transitioning here to talk a little bit about Garcia Peoples. Um, so like we said, I mean, this is one of our favorite bands making music right now. And this was one of our favorite records uh, of 2019. Very, very excited to be sharing it here with you guys. Um, this song, One Step Behind. So part of the magic of this song is that it's built on this like single cosmic riff that's repeated over and over and over until the song breaks for the chorus. And the break is welcomed because when it comes... It brings both relief and rejoice. And the brilliance of this take that, that the band released here in mid-October um, 
is that they put to record what extends like the song's overall core, the riff, to near ridiculous lengths. This isn't a jam off of the song. This is a jam within and around the song. Uh, it's incredibly ambitious. And, you know, to me, the thing that's just so fascinating, the notion that you can smear the length of a song to far reaches of what's possible and then keep going, you break down the notion of structure, pushing beyond the specter of time, the, this performance unlocks the brilliance of itself by widening the scope of the riff, seeing what new ideas can emerge from within that riff. And this only happens if you're willing to break it apart into microcosmal pieces. Um, I was chatting a bit with Danny and Tom from Garcia Peoples just with regards to uh, this performance and uh, got a bit of insight from them. Danny was saying that he was uh, actually jamming to Sweet Child of Mine and messing around on the guitar at his parents' house and 2014 something like that that makes that makes total sense right (laughs) and uh the first few notes of the song actually came really easily and from there one step behind kind of wrote itself and it's kind of how he writes uh he was saying he he hears the next note in his head and he sees how weird he can make it um around that time uh, as tom noted they played as a duo down in a new brunswick basement um and the first time they played it they were like Let's just play two songs. And uh, they got these two songs. They played these two songs uh, for a live performance, and One Step Behind was one of it. Um, They got a phaser around that point in time, and everything kind of started falling into place. Um, What they ultimately think, Pat's keyboards, that really changed the overall song. And if you watch recent performances from Garcia Peoples, particularly I'm thinking – on YouTube, there's a show from 913 that's literally just an hour-long jam. Pat's keyboards drive that jam in such an incredible way. And then again, the um, uh, October 10th show uh, from New Blue, uh, part of their October residency that just concluded, which was also their record release day for One Step Behind. They played just a 48-minute version of the song, and Pat's keyboards just really add this kind of proggy spacey nature kind of dancey aspect to it that you hear definitely in this early part of the overall jam uh and even in the latter part that we're going to get to right that was the version there's a saxophone on the first half of the song and kind of towards the very end of the song that saxophone is actually played by uh the guitarist tom malak his dad yes he's actually um his name escapes me actually i think bob malak he's uh a saxophone jazz guy. He's a session player who played with several other musicians all throughout the eighties. And I think he actually appeared at that show. So it was a very cool family affair. I've uh, watched that on YouTube. It's fantastic. I was not at that show. I was at the one on October 17th, the week after that, which is also good, but very different. That was more uh, song-based. The songs were more like 10, 12 minutes in length versus the one forty-five minute song. What's neat about the song on the record is a lot of what, I guess, I would say more run-of-the-mill or kind of what jam bands tend to do is they'll play like a song for five minutes, and when the song is over, they'll just do a riff, they'll do a funk riff, they'll improvise for like 10 minutes, then boom, like you got like what they call like a 15-minute right. version of the song. 
But in this case, like you said, the band is kind of improvising within the song itself and the song structures. Yeah, it's like you take this just idea of a song, you just break it down in, in segments. I love the idea. Um, we should note that performance from October 10th. Huge shout out to Brian uh, Whitley, uh, who can be found on Twitter at Brian Treese, B-R-Y-O-N-T-R-E-E-C-E. He posted right after the show, I had zero intentions of recording for 50 minutes, but I had uh, <laughs> I had no choice when Garcia Peoples decided to play One Step Behind for 50 minutes. So huge shout out for to him for the great quality um, and really steady camera work of, uh, of that, of that <laughs> performance. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Brian's a good dude. Yeah. Thank you for doing that, man. Absolutely. We appreciate it. Um, one thing I would say, kind of just to conclude on this segment before we play a little bit of the uh, early part of the song, um, the cool thing for me when I when I listen to One Step Behind, and if you look uh, at like their archived shows dating back to last year, um, One Step Behind is kind of akin to, it's like their Dark Star, it's like their Tweezer. Every time it shows up, typically the longest song uh, of the set it typically segues and there's a big jam based on it so the first garcia people show that i heard was 7 29 18 from union pool where they play like a 16 minute one step behind in the hanging on and hanging on was kind of the song tacked on towards the end of one step behind for much of 2018 so um it's definitely their improvisational monster this is definitely the song that brings out a ton of jamming creativity and potential for them so we're going to play right now just a small segment of the intro prior to the song proper where you can kind of hear them finding the riff and just playing around with it in various ways
So, if you happen to be listening to One Step Behind at home on your vinyl player, you actually have to get up and flip the album right after the, I guess, like proper song and or single edit portion of One Step Behind concludes. And then side B of the vinyl kicks off with this lovely repetitious jam that I'd say it's equal parts Krautrock and television's Marquee Moon. There's definitely elements of crowd rock bands like Can, bands like Noi, because there's a five-note bass line, which really anchors everything. The drums are insistent, and the repetition isn't so much an issue as it's a virtue, and the listener picks up little things. There's like an extra cymbal crash here. The guitars get progressively more angry, more busy. And then when the song peaks, it peaks very hard. So that's... They don't keep going. They do peak the damn thing, and it feels really good. And after that peak, it doesn't end because there's still like an additional three minutes of a speedy jam that brings back the saxophone from part one and kind of that the listener wishes went on for an additional 10 minutes or so. And you'd have to imagine in the live setting that it eventually will. I mean, I find with this part of the song, kind of the minimalist drum and bass jam is what immediately caused me to compare it to the jam within the uh, December 31st, 1999, Roses Are Free. And also, kind of just as a personal note, I admit that side B of that vinyl has been on my turntable for the past week. And because I'm admittedly too lazy to put on something else, I've probably listened to side B like 10 times in the past few days. And (laughs) my wife, to her credit, she hasn't complained about it. She's like, oh, this is that band you're always telling me about. This is pretty good. Like, damn right, it's good. And uh, Side B also contains the second song on the album, the eight-minute ballad Heart and Soul, which is uh, sung and written by their sometimes guitarist Derek Spaldo. I know uh, sometimes he's part of the touring unit, but I think he's in the Midwest, whereas the rest of the band is not, so he's not always there. But this song is extremely pretty. It's uh, a soulful ballad that's about as far removed from one step behind as a song can possibly be. So it's a very cool, cool way to end things. Yeah, it's a uh, it's similar to the intro in the sense that like that that final riff that like it's just extended out again. And I mean the. yeah i've been humming that all week it's so good man like yeah it's like the definition (laughs) of tension and release and it just like when that comes i'm just like all right we are we've reached the pinnacle we are at the conclusion but then you look at your phone and you've got like eight minutes left to go. It's amazing. It's such a great accomplishment on their behalf. It's earned. Yes. The peak feels earned. Very, very earned. It's not just like some guy doing like hammer-ons like five minutes into the song and making everyone go, woo. <laughs> it's earned. Yeah, this requires – I think one thing I love about it, um, it just it requires a lot of patience in a way that um, uh, like I'm thinking immediately of um, uh, the story of Yola Tango that builds over like 11 or 12 minutes and you know that has features a bit more lyrical storytelling in ter- like this is more defined by the music but like that's still defined by Ira's overall guitar playing that just builds you up and builds you up in this very hypnotic way that I just I can't get enough of that being 
That's the last song on I'm Not Afraid of You and I'll Beat Your Ass, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah, great song, great album. Check that out. All right. Let's listen to uh, the post-song jam. I mean, by post-song, as in post-lyrics jam of One Step Behind by Garcia Peoples. We're going to play some
sincerely hope that uh, that sampling of the 31-minute One Step Behind by Garcia Peoples is more than enough to convince you guys to do the after show uh, at Le Poisson Rouge on December 30th. Definitely look for some more information about that. Uh, we are going to transition here and talk about some new albums with, with a bit of a twist here. So uh, we are in the process right now. Um, it, it, we are in the process right now of um, uh, recording our top albums of 2019 episode, which is going to be a monster episode. Um, it's been a freaking amazing year for music. And what we wanted to do here with new albums was rather than focus on something that's been re- released recently, um, do kind of a uh, overlooked gem, something that we both have been listening to, we have not yet featured here on the podcast, and we just feel like it isn't being written about as much as it should. And looking at our album titles, it's pretty clear that both of us went to kind of our comfortable zones with this, which I love. Uh, so I am going to talk about Leo. Sversky's River Without Banks, which came out in mid-August, and I love this record so much, it's going to be very high on my top albums list. Um, Speaking of minimalism, that's been kind of the theme of this overall episode thus far. Uh, This record dropped in my lap in late September when I was just escaping the construction of my 200 favorite albums of the decade, and it soothed everything I was seeking for music. Uh, So Leo Svrvsky, I apologize, Leo, if I'm butchering your name, is a uh, minimalist composer from The Hague. His music sounds like late fall in the Netherlands. It's cold and imposing, but it's quite warm and engaging at the same time. It's like a walk along the canals in the rain before emerging into a cozy and familiar bar. Maybe a joint is being passed around. Some Flemish beer is being poured. Some bitterballen is being eaten. You're just warm, cozy. You feel really warm and comfy, and everything's really good in life. And then you go outside, and it's rainy and cold, and kind of stone everywhere, and then the canals are right there. Really magical imagery in my mind. Uh, this record was dedicated to uh, Svrvsky's, uh childhood piano teacher who passed away in 2018, and who he said taught him, quote, how music is alive and how when we play it, we tell someone's story. And an album like this that is so kind of open-ended from an idea standpoint really serves that notion well. It's equal parts stately and formal. It's filled with ambiance. It, it really sounds to me like late, no- late afternoon in November in like an old apartment in a European city. Coffee is being made to keep you rolling on a creative high as well as to burn off the late fall malaise and gets dark outside a little bit early. Maybe there's rain pattering against the window, but you got a nice book, you got some nice music on. It's just kind of my dream in a lot of ways. Uh, Interwoven in this record are double bass, trumpet, wing gongs, uh, all of which create this very natural feel while deepening the overall experimentation and acoustic nature of the overall concept within the record. And there's an ultimate flow to this album. It's six tracks. Each of the tracks emerge specifically because of the subtle nature within each of the songs. It's equal parts immersive, without effort or restraint. 
It's just so easy to get lost in. I listen to this before I go to bed, when I'm reading, listen to this when I'm walking to work, I listen to this just kind of when I'm cooking dinner. It just really kind of floats in and out of my overall mind and my overall life. And uh, it's super easy to get lost in, super easy to find a contemplative place in it and uh, find some happiness and some peace, which we all could use. Um, so Leo Swirsky's River Without Banks is uh, my overlooked gem that uh, uh, I'm definitely excited to to feature here in my top albums list coming up uh, in a couple of weeks. What do you got, Dave? I have an overlooked album. I think it was released about two months ago. This album is called An, Ob- an Obelisk by Titus Andronicus. So this is a nice little comeback album of sorts from a band that seems to have cycled through several phases in the lineup since their career-defining 2010 album, The Monitor, which just missed my top 30. and kind of made it seem like Titus Andronicus were set to be world beaters throughout the 2010s. That never really happened on account of endless lineup switches. A, uh, a follow-up album in 2012 called Local Business that had terrible production. Like I don't know what they heard when they put that record out. Um, they put out a double album in 2015 that really didn't need to be. It was kind of unwieldy. And in Patrick Sickles, um, sorry, Patrick Stickles, kind of volatile front man that sort of seen the wear out as welcome with a lot of the music cognoscenti who loved the monitor and kind of had inability at times to get out of his own way sort of um i don't know he's kind of every time success kind of came his way he kind of ran from it some would say so but an obelisk is a it's a course correction of the story it's got 10 songs in 38 minutes minimal bullshit even better it's produced by one of uh, stickle's most talented obvious influences being Mr. Bob Mould. And Bob Mould makes it sound exactly like the recent Mould Soul album from uh, in February called Sunshine Rock. Very good album. At times, it's almost indistinguishable from that album. Really kind of makes a good companion to it. I know that Titus Andronicus opened for Bob Mould on the Sunshine Rock tour, which I saw back in, I think, February of this year. Uh, the guitars have the perfect amount of fuzz, the vocals are mixed just high enough to be audible, but low enough that Stickle still has to yell to be heard over the din. It's really one of the better albums I've heard this year for throwing yourself around the room and blaming society for all your problems. It's just a enjoyable punk rock album from a band that it's kind of good to see get back on the horse. All right, guys. So as with tradition here for our Cypress episodes, it's another opportunity for us to uh, celebrate the year 1999, a phenomenal year for music, uh, film, I'm guessing, literature, art, I don't know, uh, cuisine. There had to be some great food that was invented then. Well, isn't it crazy to think that people went out to dinner and then didn't post pictures of it online in 1999? Mm. Um, <laughs> uh great year overall really fantastic uh uh uh, year for fish and we want to bid adieu to the 20-year anniversary of the last year of the 90s with two more records that we both love from that time period Um, i am going to feature here one of my favorite bands of the last 20 years a band that i did not realize had recently um uh 
reunited for a couple of shows, which I would love to catch them. That is the microphones with their 1999 record. Don't wake me up. So some behind the scenes BTP info. Uh, without the microphones 2000 release, it was hot. We stayed in the water. There might not be a podcast. Uh, this isn't really a record that Dave and I have particularly bonded over. Um, per my count, we've featured Phil Elvram way more as Mount Erie than we have as the microphones here on Beyond the Pond. But I have such a visceral memory of the first time I heard that record. Its contents really compiled so much of what I've been seeking in music ever since. And I remember hearing that record, getting that record, and kind of feeling like, okay, I could communicate about this, and there's some way I could connect music like this to the music of Fish. And by that means it brought us together here for this podcast. Um, of note, I was sitting on a train in late winter, early spring in Korea when I threw this on for the first time and just got my mind blown apart. Um, the record, though, in question here, Don't Wake Me Up, is the record before the record. Think of this in fish sense as the night before the night. You know, your 1230s always are such a phenomenal show because they're before the big party of New Year's Eve. This is such a great record because it showcases so many of the ideas that are going to make the microphones a phenomenal band. Um, it's more raw, it's less focused, but the overall ideas are there and it's so celebratory as a result of that. In some cases, this feels like a lower fi version of Odelay, just kind of pastiche of ideas and samples and noise comes in here and then Melly Dunn acoustic guitar comes in here. Phil Elverum's vocals come in, sings in a very abstract way, and then the noise comes back in. It's just kind of all over the place. You never really get to sit still. It's one of those things I love about the microphones. They, they sound like um, an incredibly lo-fi version of like Broken Social Scene or Arcade Fire. Uh, these bands that in the mid-2000s, indie bands, were kind of like, we're not just going to write a song. We're going to write a song with 6,000 ideas inside of it. And there's going to be 14 people playing on stage. And it's going to give us this opportunity to really just push music as far out in the far-flung reaches of rock and roll as possible. Um, there's a lovely sample of good vibrations on this record that is Equally ambitious and perfectly placed. It's kind of like, oh, wow, you actually went there. But also it's beautiful and it doesn't uh, take away from the overall record at all. Um, like its follow-up, it was hot. Uh, we stayed in the water. Uh, there's a very cohesive and connected aspect to this overall record. It, it really feels unified. In terms of everything I just said about how crazy the mashups are and the ideas are within it, it still feels very unified and of a single piece a connected whole. Uh, it's an accomplishment that really reflects where the band would leap ahead on their next two records, uh, specifically including um, the, the Glow and It Was Hot We Stayed in the Water, as well as on Phil Elverham's phenomenal work as Mount Erie for the last five years. Um, of note, like if you listen to his 2015 record, Sauna, it's got very much noise, ambient aspects, similar to what you hear here on Microphones Records. Um, his most recent work uh, following his wife's uh, passing in 2016 um, is much more lyrically focused, but uh, still quite um, uh, ambitious uh, and, and really, really affecting in its overall results. So we're going to listen to a bit of the song here with Summer. 
off of the Microphone's 1999 release, Don't Wait Yet. Okay, so my 1999 album, I'm going to talk about an album that's out of print. It's not on Spotify either. And if I still didn't hold on to my CD copy of it for dear life, it could very well be lost, it could very well be lost to history altogether. But I really, really liked it in 1999. This is an album called Leisure Noise. The band is called Gay Dad. And the song we're going to play from this album is called Dateline. So a little background. In the summer of 1999, I was uh, working a job at Yale University Cross Campus Library because it was near to where my parents lived. I went to Rutgers. I did not go to Yale. But I spent a lot of time putting books away for, like, uh, for like professors and students. And most of the time, though, I was just... Uh, at the website nme.com, reading about British bands in the New Musical Express. New Musical Express being, um, I think it's a British weekly, that it's basically, it's a magazine that has ostensibly uh, lots of concert listings, lots of album reviews, the caveat being they barely ever have anything bad to say about an album. It's kind of like pay for play, it's kind of advertising, everything kind of feels like sponsored content. But, it was the place to go if you're um, a college kid from Connecticut who's really, really interested in Britpop. And at this time, 1999, the enemy was hyping the fuck out of a band called Gay Dad. It was the hype du jour. It was fronted by a guy named Cliff Jones, who's actually, he was a music critic. Um, he wrote for the enemy. He wrote for The Face. He wrote for Mojo Magazine. I think he's credited for referring to Oasis as... The Sex Beatles, which is pretty funny. <laughs> and he, I guess what he really wanted to be was a musician because he felt like, all right, I like a certain type of glam rock music. I like rock bands. I'm a critic, so I know how the system works. 
So we got a band together and he was giving all these crazy quotes to the magazine saying like, if you want big bands, big bands have to happen. I'm hoping in many years, Gay Dad will have like 20 records. People say our debut album is the best album since the Stone Roses debut album. And I think in the NME, they gave it like an 8 out of 10. And the review ended with the line like, either you enjoy music or you don't. And I totally stole that line for like reviews I wrote in college and whatnot. Because I thought it was was pretty on point. So I think Pitchfork actually gave this album like a .9 out of 10. I think it was like a Brent DiCrescenza review. This is when Pitchfork was hilarious. So it was like a .9. This was like a wacky glam rock kind of Mark Boland, T-Rex inspired, almost like a little like Aerosmith, um, some Bowie. It's like a glam rock album, with like a lot of funny signifiers. There's a song on the album called Oh Jim. I think it's like a reference to uh, the Lou Reed song, Oh Jim. The opening song is called Dim Star. I think there was like a Thurston Moore side project called the Dim Stars, you know, kind of a bunch of Easter eggs that like rock music critic types would be expected to get. And it was a very well-produced kind of like strident driving down the highway rock album. It had a cool kraut rock song on it called black ghost. There, I think the first single was called to earth with love. And it has a line that says like, that's cool. Aerosmith rule to earth with love. So it was equally glam rock music critic inside joke rock i liked it a lot in 1999 i pulled it out again in intense in anticipation of this podcast it doesn't really hold up because holy fuck is it cheese ball but it's kind of good natured cheese ball i think they only actually played one show in america i think it was um the cmj music marathon in 1999 i think they were on a bill with the pretenders I think they played for like a half hour. It was supposedly a disaster. I think Cliff Jones said playing that show was like trying to transcribe an interview in Red Crayon. And I think at that point, the bass player left. They put out one more album after that called Transmission. That album flopped and the band just disappeared and became a footnote in history. I think maybe around... (coughs) 2003 2004 i tried to go to the gay dad website to see if um they were still around and if you're a band called gay dad and then you lose that web domain then something else will crop up entirely else after that it was kind of uh i probably shouldn't have googled that and um well actually i'll just say what they meant by that name was in the united kingdom when you're crossing the street you see, uh, like, the guy walking, which is the walk signal. That's what they called the gay dad. So they decided to name it after uh, that walk signal. So it was a moment in time for me. It was a personal record. If anybody else out there in Beyond the Pond is familiar with gay dad or has heard this record, I'd love to talk to you about it. If you're really, really curious, I guess maybe I can burn you a copy. But for now, let's listen to uh, the song Dateline off of Leisure Noise by Gay Dan.
right, guys. Thank you so much for hanging with us here in episode 82. As we keep planning these episodes, I see us on that march to triple digits. Uh, episode mm. We're going to have to figure out what exactly to go ahead, um, what exactly to do when we get to that episode. Something something special. Um, so with regards to this episode where we focused on the Roses Are Free from Big Cypress Seminole Indian Reservation, December 31st, 1999. In segment one, Repetition Can Be Awesome, a tribute to Garcia People's One Step Behind. We featured the front and back half of the 31-minute epic track, One Step Behind. Some of our thoughts, some chat chatter from uh, the band with regards to that. In segment two, 1999, I featured the microphones Don't Wake Me Up, song Here With Summer. And Dave featured Gay Dad's Leisure Noise, the song Date So, as you know, we're active on social media. You can find us on Twitter at at underscore beyond the pond, one word. Simplecast page, beyondthepond.simplecast.fm. Of course, on uh, Spotify, we have the Beyond the Pond podcast song master playlist that we always try to update. After each episode, provided the songs are available on Spotify. Please uh, go to the Osiris Podcast Network website. It's at osirispod.com. You can go to the website, and it's uh, been updated recently. You can listen to all of the other podcasts in the Osiris Network very easily. And also to um, help you out, pick some of those podcasts, please look for the Osiris Pod playlist that I know Brian puts out at the start of every week, which I think it's on Spotify and Twitter and uh, contains links to all of the latest podcasts on the Osiris network. And of course, leave us an iTunes review. We like looking at them. We like reading them. We get a kick out of them. It always increases our visibility in Tim Cook land. And like we try to remind you, We think that Spotify is a good thing. It's great to have all this music at your fingertips. Obviously, you can't bring your record player on the subway. But if you hear these bands in our podcast and you like them quite a bit, go out and buy a vinyl record, go to the concert, buy a t-shirt, buy a CD. You really got to support them somehow because just the Spotify spins on their own aren't going to do it. So really... Go out and spend as much money as you can possibly can if you enjoy the bands that we are talking about on this podcast. Absolutely. It's of the utmost importance. You can't just listen to music. You've got to really put some some of the uh, cold, hard cash that you have behind the music that you love. How about that? Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Got to put – I'd say put the money where your ears are and your mouth. There you go. (laughs) There you go. Um, so looking ahead here from a publishing standpoint, uh, as of where we sit here, as you're listening to this, this episode, episode 82, we have four more episodes coming out here in 2019. Uh, we still have, uh, what is it? 12 fish shows remaining in the year, which is pretty cool. I, uh, I was, I was, yeah, it's pretty crazy. And yeah. then we got Mexico right around the corner. So we got a lot of fish coming up, uh, which is really nice to look forward to. Uh, we're going to cover fall tour. 
Uh, we're going to be featuring our top albums of the decade, or excuse me, we already did that top albums of the year. Uh, and then we'll be returning uh, to our, one of our favorite episodes, sloppy, a little bit hazy, a little bit drunk holiday special run number three that will close out 2019 for us before we take a short break in the early part of uh, 2020 and um, regenerate, rejuvenate ourselves before we move into uh, a bunch of great stuff we have planned for next year. So still some great pond coming out here at the end of 2019. Thank you guys all for listening here and uh, we're excited for, for some new fish to discuss. Absolutely. Looking forward to discussing some new fish. Always looking forward to discovering some new music, kind of a, uh gathering our thoughts together for um some 2019 year music wrap up so please come back if you've gotten this far we appreciate it greatly we will come together we will hold hands we will sing kumbaya we will boat fight fish myopia in our own myopia and we will try to discover as much new music as possible and go beyond the pond Osiris.